Welcome to MediaStorm, a news podcast that starts with the people who are normally asked last. I'm Matilda Mallinson. And I'm Helena Wadia. And we're back with some bonus content for our loyal listeners. Last week, we looked at the war on drugs, a war it seems has failed. Deaths from drugs have reached record levels, and the UK, in particular Scotland, is the drug death capital of Europe. But if we've lost the war, what comes next? What are the alternatives? This week, we're looking at harm reduction, a different approach to drugs. America's public enemy number one is drug abuse. The gangs, the drug barriers. The link between drug abuse and crime. Just say no. Seize life. Drugs are menacing our society. They're killing our children. It is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. Say hello to my little friend! We're joined in the studio by Neve Eastwood, executive director of the charity Release, and Juan Fernandez, who leads development of the global campaign Support, Don't Punish. You both work in harm reduction. Could you just tell us what that means? I think my favorite definition of harm reduction comes from an activist in the US called Shira Hassan. And Shira says, harm reduction is a philosophy and a set of practical empowerment-based strategies designed to reduce harm from risks associated with drug use, sex, sex work, self-injury, eating disorders, violence, policing, etc. It centers individual and collective models of care that get us close to liberation and a safer world. And there's other definitions of harm reduction because it's a concept that's constantly sort of being redefined by communities that are affected by the war on drugs. But I think this definition stresses that there are very concrete steps that we can take to reduce harm associated with drugs and manage the risks associated with drug use and related experiences. I think that goes from the very personal, for example, being a sitter if a friend is trying a drug for the first time, like being there for them in case they need support, testing before you try a new batch of drugs, testing how it will react with your system. I think there's a great campaign by um, The Loop called Crush and weight. The idea that if you have a new batch of MDMA, for example, you just take a little bit to see how it reacts with your body because it might not be MDMA at all. We have to remember that this country does not allow drug checking apart from trials and pilots that are entirely paid by nonprofits and not by the government. And it goes from that to the very sort of structural, so ending criminalization, ensuring access to care. And I think in the middle, we have the opioid agonist therapy, uh, the provision of sterile equipment. So there is a range from the very personal to the very macro and structural uh, harm reduction provides all kinds of very concrete steps how we can take care of each other and ourselves. Is there a year in which you you see this utopia happening? Can you give us a timeline? If if you had to pick a year, when when is this materialising? I've only been engaged in drug policy reform for 10 years and I've seen so much change. So I, I do hope within my lifetime to see a complete rehaul of how we approach drugs. And at the same time, I think prohibition and the war on drugs will take longer to dismantle. These are incredibly entrenched systems of punishment and neglect. But there's there's huge strides. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, and I think if you look again to the US and to Canada, I mean, particularly the US, I mean, this was ground zero for the modern 
drug wall. And I think the the fact we've seen so much progression there around cannabis legalization. And and for me, what's really important in the US context and surprising is how quickly they have moved towards making sure that the regulated market for cannabis is centered on principles of social and racial justice. So back in 2012, um, when Colorado legalized cannabis and, and Washington State, I mean, these were the first two states, there's no conversation about, you know, how do we make sure that people who have been over-policed, people who have been over-carcerated are compensated for, for the harms of the drug mm. war. That wasn't part of the conversation, and that's not surprising. I mean, though they were first into the foray. You move forward 10 years, you know, New York has just legalized the cannabis market. And in fact, they had two previous pieces of legislation that would have regulated uh, cannabis and and provided that that legal market. Um, But it didn't go far enough for activists around racial and social principles and policies. And so they rejected it and it didn't get through, but it got through last November. And what we're seeing is we're seeing tax that will be raised from the market being reinvested in communities that have been harmed by policing and prohibition. We're seeing opportunities for people who are part of the illicit market to transfer into the legal market. We're seeing expungement of records, you know, making sure that people who were previously criminalized no longer bear the burden of a criminal record. And that's happening in the U.S., where we see these opportunities to redefine markets in a way that makes sure the poorest in society and the most harmed in society by the drug war are being compensated, that we are seeing reparations for the damage done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not just a peace treaty, reparations too. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. that's and exactly we, like that. And it can mm-hmm. be done poorly. I mean, so if you look at Canada, for example, they regulated cannabis back in 2018. Theirs was all about creating a market. It wasn't about repairing those harms of prohibition. And so under the Canadian model, it is still illegal to be in possession of cannabis that is bought from the illicit market. That is not the case in the US. All US states that have regulated cannabis have a level of decriminalization. So you can be in possession of a certain amount of cannabis without any sanctions, regardless of where the cannabis is sourced from. But in Canada, it is still a criminal offense. And so if we think about who can, who has the means to access that market. It sounds like a recipe for monopoly. Yeah, and, and also it's, it's, it's the people who've been thrown under the bus of prohibition yeah. are now being thrown under the bus of prohibition 2.0, we're calling it. I coordinate globally a campaign called the Support and Punish campaign that's trying to build a mass movement against the war on drugs. And I think part of it is awakening solidarity in people, making people realize that you almost have a moral responsibility as a privileged drug user to stand in solidarity with those who do not have those privileges um, and vote accordingly and demand change accordingly. And of course, there's allyship. We can encourage people who might not be in any way related to the drug trade or be drug users, uh, not be personally affected, but understand that this is harmful for society as a whole. And what is harmful to our neighbors is harmful to me. It's what I was also alluding to earlier about creating this vision of a society that values interdependence. That is partly what the Support on Punish campaign is trying to do, apart from affecting political and policy change. 
I'm, I'm wondering the real life impact of, of media reporting and whether it makes it harder for, for people to speak out knowing that they could be labelled a criminal. Does it make it harder for charities like yours to open local treatment centres or implement harm reduction strategies? I mean, honestly, it's making me think of... I went to a Catholic school and the... Um, contraception that we were taught was was abstinence and then we had Same. this nurse who would like secretly pedal contraceptive pills desperately trying to prevent teenage pregnancies in our year group. I mean is that you? Are you the nurse? No we're not quite there. We're not I mean we, we do have harm reduction um, facilities in the country so you know, people can access sterile injecting equipment they can access naloxone, which is a really important medication that can reverse the effects of an opiate overdose, so a heroin overdose. Um, but the laws do prevent us from actually setting up really important harm reduction interventions. So, for example, drug consumption rooms. So these are facilities where people can take their own illicitly bought drugs mm. and they can use them in those facilities um, under the supervision of peers or a nurse. And it just means if they, they are likely to, to, to have an overdose, there's someone there to look after them. But the law and the Home Office specifically are refusing to allow these rooms because they don't want to be seen to uh, condone drug use. And I think also, I mean, if you look at the high rates of drug-related deaths in this country, you know, the fact that we have the highest on record since records began in the 1990s, and that is the 10th year in the row that I'm saying that. 10th year. And you, hey. you know, you get, yeah, you, you get, get tired. tired. You get tired. You do. You know, and it is, it just, it gives me goosebumps every time I say it, because it is so distressing to think that the vast majority of these deaths are avoidable. Mm. I mean, they're actually avoidable with good public health interventions. We, we could save a lot of lives. But you look at the reporting of these deaths in the media and, and when a young person dies, say, for example, of an MDMA, strong MDMA, whatever, it's tragic. But that makes front page news. We have 1,900 people who die of heroin overdoses. They never make the news. These lives just don't seem to be worth anything. And that that plays out both in the media, it plays out in policy, it plays out in policing. And that, to me, is a real failing of society and a failure of politicians and a failure of media. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week with an episode on sex work. Follow MediaStorm wherever you get your podcasts so that you can get access to new episodes as soon as they drop. If you like what you hear, share this episode with someone and leave us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps more people discover the podcast and our aim is to have as many people as possible hear these voices. You can also follow us on social media at Matilda Mal, at Helena Wadia and follow the show via at MediaStormPod. Also get in touch and let us know what you'd like us to cover or who you'd like us to speak to. MediaStorm, a new podcast from the House of the Guilty Feminist, is part of the ACOS Creator Network. It is produced by Tom Zielinski and Deborah Francis-White. The music is by Samfire.